Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. BT Sport Pods. Hi, welcome to Michael Calvin's Football People. I'm joined by Miguel Delaney of The Independent and Tony Hodson from the Coach's Voice platform. Now, regular listeners will know that Tony has a bit of a soft spot for Liverpool. I've been to see Jurgen Klopp to get a sense of how he's handling a difficult season. It was a fascinating conversation. I think it's fair to say the FA Cup offers their last realistic chance of a trophy. They're at Brighton on Sunday in the fourth round. Going in as underdogs, Tony? Well, I looked at the odds last night, Mike, because I like to do my prep for these things. And it transpires that the bookies have them roughly joint favourites for this game, which I think is just biased towards the so-called bigger club. Because after the league game a week or two ago, those odds looked mighty generous to, to Liverpool. But speak about the FA Cup being the last kind of realistic chance of a trophy. The nature of Liverpool's relationship with the Champions League is such you can never actually rule them out in that competition, I don't think. They got to the quarterfinals in 2020-21 when, at a time when pretty much every team, including the local school team, were rocking up at Anfield and winning. So <laughs> um, you'd never rule them out. But of course, on paper, the FA Cup looks like, looks like the bigger chance. The reality is that looking at this particular tie against Brighton, Liverpool are lacking both the form and the intensity required to cope with a vibrant, dangerous team that appears to have kicked on from where they were under Graham Potter with the new manager, Roberto De Zerbi. Leandro Trossard is gone, of course, but the threat didn't begin and end with him at Brighton. It looks like a very tough game for Liverpool. Sure. What's your take on, on their season so far, Migs? You know, they've got their lowest points total at the midway stage of a, of a Premier League season for nine years. Do you think they can recover it and, and get into that top four? Well, I mean, first of all, it's certainly a lot worse than I expected. Because again, I, especially given the way last season ended, I expected them to be kind of easily top four. I suppose you could say that the way last season ended, as Thiago Alcantara said in the last few days, and Klopp has referenced, has played a part in this. I don't think it is immediately ex- explainable as it was in 2020-21, where they were kind of ravaged by so many knock-on injuries that... Uh, it just completely undercut what they were doing. But it did recover then, which illustrates they have the capacity to recover now. And also, let's not forget, at this time last year, last season wasn't quite as... It, it, it certainly wasn't as strong as the last four months made it look. And then suddenly they ramped it up. So certainly that's within their capacity. 
as to whether they do it though, I think it does tie into bigger questions as in that we are probably at the end of the cycle of a team now. Again, as Klopp discusses, it's about it's about that transition. But I think one of the one of the more interesting questions there is whether Klopp himself has made enough of the necessary changes. I mean, even in the last game they played against Brighton, seven of the starters were like core players in that in that twenty eighteen to twenty two core, and that's even without Virgil Van Dijk playing and Firmino, who would who could feasibly bring it up to nine. That's a lot. And I mean, if we if we go by the classic of what Ferguson used to do, what Bob Paisley did in nineteen eighty one. That's probably not en- enough change for a, a new team. So there is, I mean, I, I know Klopp is trying to bring it on to the next stage and to build a new team, but it doesn't feel like enough has been done to actually herald that in. Yeah, if we're talking about team development transition, obviously this summer is going to be a key, isn't it, Tony? You know, there's obviously the persistent talk about Jude Bellingham. To attract the right type of player... You need to give them the right type of stage, which is obviously the Champions League, which again feeds back into the narrative that they need to get into the top four. Yeah, which it looks like they won't at the moment. Let's be honest about that. They're, they're 10 points behind the Champions League places, currently inhabited third and fourth by Man United and Newcastle. Liverpool have a game in hand, but there's also, there's not 10 points, there's also a bunch of places and teams between them. It's an intimidating, but not insurmountable number. I mean, Liverpool were 14, as Mick said, Liverpool were 14 behind City at one point last season and almost overturned that. But, as he also says, that was a very different team in terms of both form and momentum. I mean, all they can do is is, is start putting some wins together and see where it takes them. But, United, despite losing to Arsenal, look like they're going in the right direction under Eric Ten Hag. Newcastle have no European or FA Cup football to worry about. So, I mean, the odds, they don't look good for Liverpool. Now, in some ways, I mean, the, you almost think the worst thing is if they finish fifth or sixth, end up in the Europa League or or, or the other one. But in some ways, the, pe- the pe- other one, yeah, I love that. Pe- pe- people have suggested that uh, people have suggested that just having a complete refresh and having no European football next season might might do the club a favour. But that seems like a very negative, positive to look for. Um, and and there's, there's still there's still a lot of, there's still half a season to go. So we'll see. Just on that, Tony, this is something I've been thinking a lot uh, to the point I'm actually doing a piece on this towards the end of the week um, on the idea of follow years for teams in that because of the nature of modern football and especially short-term revenue, teams can't countenance it. But it's as Arsenal pretty much prove, it's far better in the long run. For me, it strikes me as a big difference now between, say, Arsenal and certainly Liverpool and Spurs, where I mean, what pretty much happened in in twenty twenty one for Arsenal, which I mean, a horror season for them too, was that they were willing to essentially allow the squad, not quite a tank, but they allowed Arteta the time and space to see what worked, to get rid of players, to build something, and effectively wrote off a campaign as well as a lot of wages as they got rid of players. I, I, so it it was a true clean break. Where for, for me, it just seems the moment that. Because of that need to get into the Champions League, and because of it's still kind of hanging on to the remnants. Of previous, I think Spurs, it's definitely the case with Spurs with the Pochettino team, and and Liverpool again with this kind of 2018-22 team. Where rather than kind of this clean break required, and because they're still chasing the Champions League, it's still kind of just almost the aftermath of those previous sides. Yeah, sure. Well, you know, I've always been impressed by Klopp's sense of perspective. He acknowledges his problems, but he concentrates on potential. He knows there are no instant fixes. 
unless maybe you're Chelsea, when it comes to building a new team. Welcome, Jürgen. Really appreciate your time. We had Pep Guardiola on the podcast last week, <laughs> and he spoke about the loneliness of leadership, almost feeling completely abandoned in the difficult times. Is that something you can identify with? Because it's down to you to come up with a solution. Yeah, that's true. Yes, that's probably the case. He's right. But I wouldn't say that's something new. I think um, a lot of other people in other much more important positions realize that. And much more difficult decisions to make, presidents of countries, stuff like that, or prime ministers or whatever, or chancellors to have in Germany. So, yeah, in the end, you have to make a decision. But especially because of that, you need super strong and super smart team around you because Making a decision is not that much a problem if you have all the information available. If you don't have them, then it's really tricky. So, and that's why I don't struggle too much, or never struggle really, with making the decisions, because I got from wherever from, at least from my point of view, all the necessary informations. And um, that's why then in the end, somebody has to push the button, and that's very often me, very often, me, yeah, it's true, but that's the way it goes. Are you in many ways facing the greatest challenge in coaching and leadership where you're trying to transition a team while still continuing to win? It's a very difficult <laughs> trick to pull that, isn't it? If it's possible at all. So, yeah, no, true, it's right. Uh, was always clear. There are obviously plenty of ways, different ways you can do it, but it's all based on the situation you are in. And um, I know it's, in times like this, it's always like, um, especially with the things happening around Chelsea with new ownership, obviously nobody knows exactly now how they do it, how they can spend that much money, stuff like this, other teams. So nobody likes me talking about that because it's, uh, it's, it's okay you talk about it, but a transition needs time usually if you don't have mm. endless money. So otherwise you can change overnight pretty much and bring in 10 players and other 10. And, and if you wouldn't, last week I got a question about if I'm too loyal. <laughs> I really think it's a, that's a, I'm not too loyal, but questioning loyalty in general is a sign of our time, uh, the time we are living in as well, so which I really don't like too much. Mm. Um, because I never saw anything bad in loyalty, to be honest. It's, you are to your friends, to your family, to your company. In the idle world, you are loyal. And it's not a one-way road. So that's then the idle world, when both sides feel the same and you know, big things can grow out of that. And that's what I really like about But coming back to your question, yeah, I'm not sure if it's the biggest challenge, but it's a challenge. And um, mm -hmm. it was one of, the, one of the main reasons why I signed the new contract, because I knew it, it's necessary, it will not go overnight. And imagine the situation now with another coach in the chair. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Everything changes, yeah? Everyone would shout, I would be somewhere on holiday and everybody would shout my name and with him would not have happened and stuff like this. It's not, I'm obviously not a miracle worker, so and that's why it's good how it is, not that, because to all the problems you have in a transition time, a period, 
we have an awful lot of injuries mm. and that makes life really complicated. Mm. So, and that's then, I have no problem with that because I see obviously, I know the majority of the outside world is just interested in the short term, but we have to, we have to be mid and long term focused as well. And that's what we are. And in that sense, you know, as a coach and a leader, hunger is a great ally for you, isn't it? And you, and you see it in young players, you see it in you know, Ben Doak or Harvey Elliott and players like that. Is that part of the reason that gets you up in the morning, that you can sense their ambition and you see them wanting to be better and you can then see a path ahead? Yeah, it's, it's not only the kids, it's, but it's yes, of course, as well. We have Stefan, we have so many, we have really a lot, which we don't know yet, but hopefully we'll know in the future. Yes, it's a big part, but it's, as a leader as well, first and foremost, never did anything else than leading human beings. So I'm now 55 years old in the job for a while, and I don't know everything about humankind, but I know a lot, and we are all weak, and we are. Maybe some of us are lesser than others, but in a moment when we are too comfortable, mm. when we all get lazy, stuff like this, having too much money, having too much blah, blah, blah. Yeah, if we are in our comfort zone and feeling well there, then humankind is fine. Mm. And now, but now this is not a problem because I don't have that really that much. I can't remember. So my, my most, what me, drives me really is I'm happy to be part of a successful football team. But I don't feel really responsible for that. It's not that I think, that, well, it's because of me. I just don't have that. I know I'm part of it and I'm a sometimes more important piece than in other moments. But if it's not going well, I feel 100% responsible. So if you are really responsible for something, then you go out for it. That's like, you go, I hope a lot of people go out for work and love what they are doing, but most of the time it's probably to feed the family. And that drives them and that's absolutely fine and gives you a real motivation. That's why you work harder and all these kind of things. And we have the, the similar reasons. And for me, it's really to put it right is the main thing what drives me. Yeah, football is increasingly sophisticated technologically in terms of your preparation, but it's still a people business, isn't it, football? Mm. Do you manage by feel? Yeah, and knowledge. Your brain and, and was it guts? Or, or mm, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Both. Gut feeling. Yeah. Gut feeling and, and, and brain, of course. Again, when I started as a coach, the analyze I did was mainly for me because I watched the game again and again and again to understand it. Mm. Because the position you are standing in, obviously, on the sideline is not the best in the stadium. It's like Mm. Always people running in front of yeah, you. Yeah, you see like that. So then you get you go into interviews after the game and they tell you, me, ask you, well, what do we make of the game? And I say, the honest answer would have been, can I watch it back? Yeah. <laughs> One more time, please. And then you go home and you watch it and watch it and watch it because you want to have answers for yourself and answers for the players. So now, it's not that I got the game. Probably like golf. I don't play golf, but it's probably a bit of the, um, yeah, what is the shortest golf joke is, um, oh, I got it now. <laughs> um, and it's exactly the same, but of course I, I build on a completely different basis. When I watch a game, I don't watch it for the first time. Now I watch it uh, so many different and different angles and stuff like this. And now I have plenty of people for that, to do that. I watch it back, of course, but the detailed information I get from other people. Mm. And that is then, okay, then it's like to come together with what I saw and what they saw, and it's the information we can give. So that would mean we could give the players like a four-hour without a problem from a 90-minute game before our analyze meeting. So, and you take all the things, not important things out, and then it's like five minutes. And that's what you're talking about, if 
or you don't talk about it because the next game is coming up. So that's where football is very different nowadays. But in the end, it's still important what the man in charge makes of it. So because I can overload a team with information or I don't. Mm -hmm. So that's to do with trust in them as well. So um, it could be a one-off or not. And these kind of things have plenty of things to do, which will never, a machine will never be able to do that. So um, at least in this department, we can be sure that football managers, as long as people want to see the game, will always be needed. Mm. Liverpool is a very emotionally engaged club. I love that. Yeah. Because of that emotional engagement, it's up and it's down, there's a lot of noise. Yeah. How do you manage in that noise? Well, a bunch of skills, but one of my skills is I'm completely independent from public opinion. And I help myself in a period like that, I don't read anything about Liverpool. Pretty much nothing. So just because it's nothing nice. If you know the news in the morning are all rubbish, why would you read it? So it's like, oh, I feel already not great. So now you go in and, and go more in detail and people who don't know you really and or are not really interested go for it. So that's the one thing. So, but that's me. And I know I'm the only one in the whole building who is like that because everybody else reads everything. So I need to know about their feelings as well. So, and, but I can imagine, it's how it is. Problems have only the right to exist because of solutions. So otherwise, so it's not interesting. So the problems are obvious. We don't play well. We don't do that. We don't do that. So for my job, it's not to mention the problems constantly. My job is to, to find solutions. And that's what I can do completely independent from the outside world. So it means I'm not fussed by it. So it's not that I sit at home and can't speak or whatever. You need to learn that, by the way, because it's massively influential, the whole thing. But you need to learn about um, since 10 years. I'm pretty good at that. Yeah. So because I, you're a great communicator. And so you're going to go into a press conference. Who are you speaking to in that press conference? Like Sir Alex always used to say he was speaking to his players and no one else. <laughs> Same with you? No, because I'm not sure my players watch it. But it's, I don't have a real message. So now after this interview, we have a press conference. Tony tries to prepare me for it, give me a little bit of hint and there where they could come from. But I don't think a second before. I don't believe in press conference. Let me say it like this. So you cannot win a game there. It might be possible to lose it if you say completely wrong things. That might be possible. But I don't think they are, they are massively important, to be honest. And I don't have time to think about what I could say and before and after what I said and worry about it or whatever, no time for that. Other people will tell me, oh, that was too much. Oh, yeah, 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 that will create headlines. I know in a moment I say something, oh, that will be the headline tomorrow, and I don't want to do that, but it happens anyway. So, no, I don't speak to my players in press conference. I have other areas where I speak to my players, so, and where I can directly say, there might be moments, unconsciously, where you, where you give a message, and it's for everybody, journalists, supporters, and players as well. And to support us, yes, from time to time, of course, when I ask for, in difficult times, for an outstanding atmosphere, for example, of course, that's a clear message, I try to give a message. But most of the time, I don't really think about the press conference until a second before I enter the room. Mm. What makes your job particularly fulfilling? Now, beyond results and trophies and stuff like that, and, and developing people, which I'm sure in your case is very important, what is so That's very, 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 I'm not sure selfish is the right word, but the thing is, I love it. It's just like, I said, okay, when I was five years old, somebody would ask, what do you want to be? And I probably would have said something else. And for sure not football manager, then maybe football player. I don't know exactly when that dream 
yeah. became a bit more clear. I wanted to be an astronaut. Yeah, that's a good idea, by the way. I wanted to doctor, I know, in, in periods in my life, but I don't know exactly when that was. So, but always, of course, I loved the football game always. And then while I was playing, I knew I want to be a manager. But with my career, you cannot, with a young family and stuff like this, you have to earn money. And everybody told me, well, I'm not the dumbest person on the planet that I can have kind of a career in other, in other parts of life. But the problem, I would have done that, no problem. But the only thing I really wanted to do, my passion, my love, everything was about football. So that I can do that, that's the most fulfilling part of it. I love each part of my job. That doesn't mean I enjoy it every day because, how I said, losing against Brighton in the way we lost and then going to and speaking to the media is torture mm. and nothing else. That's not a moment where I love it, but it's still part of the deal. Do you ever worry what it's taking out of you as a person? I don't because my missus is a hard judge of that and would tell me that's it now. So it's really like that. If I, so I, yeah, I could get lost in it, in working and stuff like this and, and <laughs> firing everything out at work, coming home and have absolutely no nil point nil energy level and sit there just like a zombie in the corner or whatever. I could, that could happen to me, but it's thankfully not with Ulla. So, and we have, we found really um, good ways to switch off. And after 22 years now, I know when I cannot change anything anymore. And that means that's the moment I stop thinking about it. I sleep really well, come home, have half an hour roundabout drive home. And that's the last 30 minutes of a day where I really think about the job. I know I dream of football, so that's not cool because I speak in sleep and so I hear that, but I don't realize that. So that's all fine. The job is incredibly demanding. It is, but it's great as well. I don't. So that's why I say always when Roy Hodgson came back again <laughs> to Christopher, when he came in, I saw him and I asked him, do you have a wet flat? Or I go out again. No, I love it. So I cannot see myself beyond 70 and still standing a dog out each weather and especially each weather for training, one and a half, two hours, whatever, standing there in the wind. I can't see that. But I understand a little bit where they're coming from and I hope then that other things are that interesting to me that I'm really fine with not being involved anymore. Yeah, Pep talked about being a 90 kilogram grandfather. He loved that. He has no chance to, be, to gain 90 kilogram. I'm asking why, why he's in such a good shape and I do his sports. He said, no. How can you be in such a shape when you're not doing sports? <laughs> but uh, yeah, 100%. So we, we, we will be grandparents now next year, first time in, in May. And we can't wait. But I'm not there for already sitting the whole day, just having a grandkid on my on holidays and stuff like is fine. But of course, that's the plan to be exactly there. So to be with the family and friends at a nice place and watching football, because that I will do for the rest of my life. I know that. But not being involved anymore, that's definitely something I have no problem uh, yeah, to do. So the final question. You have reached a thousand games. That's a great number. Every manager that I know says, I want to get to a thousand. Oh, I never thought a big that. deal. It's a big deal. Out of those thousands, what lesson would you pass on to the manager who is starting on game number one? Oh my God. <laughs> to put my personal story, I could say, don't worry, it will be fine. <laughs> after the first massive defeat or whatever, because um, obviously the career went much in a direction I never could have imagined. In general, it's a little bit like that. Football 
problems you sort with football. And the better you are at that, the more likely it is you will sort it. So that gives me always, so if I would have to sort problems for the rest of the world with my little knowledge and my tunnel view to football, it would be a problem. But I know a little bit about football, and um, so that's why I'm pretty comfortable in, in these situations. That's it. Be busy. Learn the game. It's a golf joke. When you think as a coach, oh, I got it. <laughs> uh, now, there will be another problem around the corner and you have to find a solution for that. But that's cool as well because it keeps you on your toes. Well, thank you very much. For You're welcome. Time. I really wish you all the best. <laughs> and for you. Well, I found it interesting that he dreams about football and he talks in his sleep. So I bet the quotes are still pretty good. Tony, obviously, we've said this is a club close to your heart. I came away with a, a sort of a whisper in my ear that, you know, this could be Klopp's last great project. What do you think? Yeah, I mean, he certainly doesn't talk like a man. He wants to be doing it into his 70s, does he? He's 55. The current contract runs until 2026, which takes him up to 58, 59. Now, he sounded relatively, bearing in mind the way this season has gone, he sounded relatively relaxed in your chat, Mike, although this might just be the effect you have on people. Um, <laughs> well, I, I bore them into submission. <laughs> <laughs> I thought more relaxed them, uh, more relaxing, less soporific. But, um, but yeah, we, this is a guy, like, he puts a lot of emotion and a lot of energy into his work. And as I think you rightly pointed out in the interview, Liverpool is a club and indeed a city that kind of lives, thrives and rides on similar waves of emotion. It's, it's why they've almost found the perfect cadence together in, in the past seven years. Obviously, I'm incredibly partial in, on this particular score, but you do wonder whether he'd be able to find that level of emotion and energy to go again anywhere else once, once the Liverpool era is over. Do you get the sense that he feels that, you know, I mean, Miggs is right and there's, there, there still seems a massive hangover from the last great team and, and getting rid of or at least moving some of those on does seem to have been a problem. I do get the impression, though, that quietly Klopp is very kind of certain that his work at Liverpool is not yet done. Plenty of Liverpool would love to believe the same. So if he does keep going to 2026 or beyond, you'd have to think this probably will be his last job before he calls it quits. Mm. Well, he certainly, I think, was right to point out probably the longer-term nature of his task. Miggs, what sort of realistic timetable do you think Liverpool fans should expect him to adhere to? See, I, I suppose, I mean, even as actually as Manchester United have proved, once the kind of uh, starting point is fixed and once there's a focus about doing it, it can actually turn around quite quickly. You, you arguably need, only need th- three windows because, what well, you can bring in at least six players in that time. Now, of course, there's a bit of an adjustment period. And as Klopp himself approved between kind of when, when he came in in October 2015 and then I suppose what it was, it was about two years really that we started to see the, the, the genesis of the Liverpool team that would go on that, ru- go on that run, the first run of the Premier League and also get to the Champions League final. So, I mean, yeah, I think a year and a half until you can get back to the real level you were at. Now, of course, Fergus needs to do it even even more quickly. So that can't be ruled out either. But I think, like as a fairly conservative estimate, eighteen months to two years, which I don't think is, is that long. It just requires an element of patience that, for all sorts of reasons, the, uh, the modern game doesn't really allow. What do you think of the of the bigger picture, Tony? 
you know, he mentioned Chelsea's wealth and, you know, the signing a week policy they appear to be um, uh, pursuing. Do Liverpool need the injection of, say, Qatari money? And how will that sit with the nature of the club? I think any club could have go with an injection of Qatari money, Mike. I think whether or not that's a good thing on or off the pitch is another question. I don't think it would sit particularly well with the nature of the club. But again, that's maybe me being an old romantic. We've seen with plenty of other clubs that have had investment from morally dubious sources that, that those kind of thoughts go out of the window quickly when results start turning around on the pitch. And then there's the question of, of, of you know... <laughs> It's not really Klopp's metier to go out and spend huge amounts of money on on loads of players in the way that kind of Chelsea seems. I mean, that's not Graham Potter's way, is it? But it seems that even he can't stop that tide at Chelsea. And 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 with Liverpool, there is that a lot been talked about the squad. It's not it's not a small squad, and there has been investment. I guess the issue is Miggs has already pointed out that there is that core of players who are in their kind of late twenties, early thirties who. They've kind of aged together and they've also got a million miles on the clock. You know, Van Dijk, Matip, Robertson, Fabinho, Henderson, Salah, Firmino, even Trent, who's only 24, but just looks drained at the moment. It looks like he needs he needs a refresh. And then, but beneath that, what you don't have is a level of kind of mid-20s kind of coming into their peak players. You've got mm. younger players, Canate, Nunes, Elliot. So you, what you got, you've got this gap and that, you know, they, those guys, you know, you've got people like, I mean, Kate is 27, but has never really done it consistently, either in form or fitness. Diaz and Jota are both in their mid-20s, so in that bracket are both out. Gomez has had his injury problems, and Trent, I've already said, look, looks looks wrecked. But there is a sense that if you give it a little bit of time, with a few more players here and there, this next generation will age and mature together to a point that they, they might they might start to challenge again, because there's clearly a huge amount of ability there. The question, as Mig says, is what happens with people's patience in the meantime. Yeah, well, I was intrigued by him talking about young players whose names we don't know at the moment coming through. He's he brought Bajetic through as well, or he's certainly giving him his chance. I also was intrigued, Migs, by his musings on loyalty. He seemed genuinely bewildered by being accused of being too loyal. Um, <laughs> and he did point out that loyalty is a two-way process. What do you make of his mindset now? Well, there was an interesting line of thought in that as well when he when he spoke about say he went and the new guy wasn't doing well and people see him in the supermarket and then go oh <laughs> there's a guy he yeah. needs to be doing much better now which is yeah. you know the the classic uh, grass always greener stuff in football in that sense but it, it did feel a little bit of a message I think it's quite interesting as well in the context of I mean the these managers at this sort of level are only loyal to a certain point and that they're they're they're, they're loyal to the possibility of performance and he, and he, even Klopp in this sense for I suppose I've written this myself for all as as gregarious as he can, as he can seem in, in in interviews and as obviously a, a warm a figure as he generally is there's also of course just because he's elite, an elite manager who's done it at, at the top level and will go down in history. There's a there's a necessary hardness there. He can be like that with players. But but yeah, I suppose it's about that it, it, it's about that bigger pictures of how much they can still give him. And and it was also you know you you mentioned the kind of um you know the players we don't know yet. So the, the, the most classic case of that is 
is Trent Alexander-Arnold. And all right, obviously, kind of, I suppose people around Liverpool would have known of his potential. But if you consider when he, when we all, we always look, say, at and and as this this points to how quickly Klopp can actually turn it. Say when we see those comparisons of the first the first eleven he had in that very first game for Liverpool against Chelsea, and then his peak Liverpool from twenty eighteen to twenty twenty or so. But and you know Alexander Arnold obviously wasn't in the first one, and and at that point uh, people in the in the wider game I suppose and it's exactly the sort of thing he's talking about names we don't know yet, but he wasn't really considered. And, and again, it, it it points to how quickly things can change, and also in terms of loyalty, <laughs> only how how it could only go so far because the the nature of football in that sense, someone is always coming to take your place. Mm. Yeah, we've been very fortunate in having spoken to Pep Guardiola and Jurgen Klopp in successive episodes. That invites comparisons between the two, Tony. From my point of view, each has got the same sort of challenge. In, in, in other words, transitioning a team while continuing to win. What do you make of the comparisons between the two? I think it's an obvious comparison to make and I think it's pretty accurate. The facile point to make about the two of them in their current situations is that Guardiola can do this while spending a lot more money. Although, actually, not not spending this season, they've made a healthy profit while also signing the league's most prolific striker in a generation. So, for once, that isn't an obvious stick to beat Pep and and City with. But you're right, they they do look like teams in transition. And part of that, of course, is based on the last kind of four or five years where they batter the life out of each other, not, not week in, week out against each other, literally, but over the course of four or five years of competing so so toughly at the top of the table. I mean, two of those seasons were ridiculously intense and kind of high-quality title battles, both of which City won. And the other two were, were, were seasons in which one of them kind of fell away and the other one just kind of coasted to a title. I think there's probably a bit of truth in that both have suffered a bit on the back of that. Liverpool obviously suffering much more than City. The difference this year is that, as opposed to previous years, is that one of the teams have dropped down there is another one in the form of Arsenal who are finally ready to, to get involved in the fight. That's the challenge that Guardiola's facing. Although with Guardiola, you always feel that he's kind of transitioning to some degree. Don't you? The kind of the nervous energy that seems to drive him and his kind of passion and devotion to thinking about the game is such he's unlikely ever to be a 90-kilogram grandfather, as he referred to himself in your chat with him the other week. Uh, I, I, I like Klopp's competitiveness on that as well. Yeah, but with Klopp, I guess, I guess, so I guess Guardiola is always kind of nudging and changing away to some degree. Klopp, it feels like a real reset because of where the squad is, and I guess winning is tougher when that when that reset is more significant. A, a line that a good friend of mine said to me only a few weeks into the season about Liverpool. Which is that why is it whenever I turn Liverpool on the TV, I seem to see James, an ageing James Milner chugging into a tackle that he should probably get booked for? And I think that's the issue where when Miggs referred to Alexander Arnold earlier, he came in as somebody we'd never heard of into a team with plenty of players who we had heard of. And it looks a little bit like at the moment Liverpool are starting to rely a bit too much on the future rather than sorting out the present. But time, time will tell. What do you make, Miggs, of Pep's, let's say, new stridency recently? You know, he came over, I think, loud and strong, both in our interview, but also subsequently, you know, coming up with criticism of the home fans, which I suppose is a broader issue given football's tourist trade. Is he pushing the right buttons at City now? Well, that's what clearly what it's about, isn't it? Now, I must admit, I was at the game 
on Thursday and we were, we were in Antonio Conte's press conference, which would usually have dominated the headlines because he was giving some of his customary lines about Spurs challenging that. But as this was happening, we were getting all sorts of messages about uh, Guardiola's broadcast interview and how he absolutely had to see this because he, he was really going to another level. And then just literally the minute Conte walked out, Guardiola came in and continued very much in the same vein. And I mean, in terms of knowing what he's meaning, I suppose I have to confess there was a lot of moments in it where I was wondering exactly what he was saying because it was almost like a stream of consciousness. But the sentiment was all too clear because this is all about... It's all about... It is a classic of... I mean, it's it's amazing how these are, these are obviously figures, especially Klopp and Guardiola, who've changed football, what they've done tactically, represent kind of historical landmarks. And yet certain fundamentals of the sport just will, will of course, never change because it's about human nature. And that is about... As they've both mentioned so much in the last few years, and Guardiola particularly mentioned that in that that week with your interview and with his talk after the game, which is about hunger. It's about drive, about the willingness to go again that he sees it in Arsenal, but he doesn't see it in his own players. And that, that came, it, it was a message to them. And it's going to, I mean, on one side, you could argue this is actually what Liverpool and now Arsenal have done to him. But the flip side of that is what's this going to do to his players? Yeah. And it also, you know, came over you know, very strongly that affinity he has with, Mikel Arteta, Tony, you know, we're back to that human relationship piece again, aren't we, really? There's another chapter in a burgeoning rivalry on Friday night in the FA Cup when City meet Arsenal. This might sound heretical, but actually in Arsenal's point of view, would it be best to sort of bow out gracefully? Maybe, yeah, but I just, I don't see that happening with this one. And the beauty of this cup tie is that it's kind of a wonderful freebie from them both because obviously not the, the FA Cup is not the not the most the biggest priority for either of them. You've alluded to the fact that Arteta and Arsenal are firmly focused on the Premier League, and obviously City will want to win the Premier League while focusing their energies again when it comes back on on that kind of holy grail of the Champions League. But these two teams have history in the FA Cup. You forget Arteta did a bit of a job on City in the 2020 semi final behind closed doors, and actually going back to the chat earlier about how quick you know you can turn a team around. That Arsenal team had probably only one current first teamer, which is Granit Xhaka, who started that game. And that was only two and a half years ago. It's probably a measure of the rebuild Arteta has done. But yeah, I think I think you know we, we might see we might see rotation on, on both sides. The reality is that rotation very rarely harms whatever City do, such as the strength of their squad. Arsenal probably more of an issue, but you know, I'm sure Arteta will start Leandro Trossard. Fabio Vieira might get a go. Smith Rowe hasn't played for a bit. Holding and his incredibly encroaching hairline might get a game. Kieran Tierney, <laughs> Sambi Laconga. So we, it's, it's, you know, I, I, I don't think Arteta's going to want to go and not give a proper fight. Of course he will anyway. Like you say, it may not may not matter too much to them if they go out, but I think it could be a bit of a treat. Mm. Interesting. What would your take be, Migs, on Zinchenko being allowed to leave City? He's been outstanding, hasn't he? Yeah, uh, I mean, this is a bit of a throwback, I suppose, but uh, uh, my colleague uh, back in Ireland, Ken Early, has been comparing it to uh, when Matt Busby allowed John Giles to go to Leeds United. And, and but there's nothing in that, in that clearly 
I mean, it's not just in terms of how good Zinchenko is as a player. Sunglin's probably only become more apparent because he's now a senior player. Whereas, I mean, at City, there's always that sense of kind of, he's just a kind of a tactical piece in the machine. And he don't, it means he's not pronounced in the same way. Whereas Arsenal, it's, he's clearly elevated things in a number of ways, both tactically and then evidently in this, in the mentality of having the squad, given, given that, that interview he gave after the game on Sunday where he spoke about how he was telling them we're going to win the league, some were kind of laughing. And now, as he put it, no one's laughing. But he's had, he's had, he's had a huge effect. One of those, it's a classic case as well. You can, you can see it in the way he moves, I mean, in so many aspects again, and that he makes those around him play better. Yeah. They're missing the other element of the City equation, or the former City equation, uh, Gabriel Jesus. But Eddie Nketiah, 18 goals in his last 26 starts in all competitions, Tony. He's certainly proving people wrong, isn't he? He is, yeah. And of course, the, the, uh, I've used this phrase already on this on this chat, but the, the, the stick that people beat Gabriel Jesus with a lot is that he doesn't score enough goals, that he isn't that kind of, you know, fox-in-the-box sort that doesn't seem to be that fashionable anymore. But if Arsenal win a Premier League title with goals thanks to Eddie Nketiah scoring, kind of poaching, and his two goals at the weekend against Manchester United were great. Like, they were from, what, a combined total of about five or six yards out, but... One just kind of ghosting in at the far post with a really good header against a sleeping fullback, and the other one just technically was a really, really lovely finish. <laughs> so I, I think he's looking great. Also, a point that Miggs kind of alluded to as well with, with Zinchenko and Jesus, even though he's not there. People talk about Arsenal not having won a title before, not having been in this before, but they've got two players there who have. Zinchenko obviously has, has really stepped up as a leader. But actually on the pitch, I don't know, I feel like I'm quite naive for this. Maybe I should have realised this before, but I don't think we saw at Man City, or I certainly didn't see at Man City, just how phenomenal his passing is between the lines. I mean, he picks out players. When you think that Arsenal have got Odegaard, Xhaka is, is playing in this new advanced role, and then you've got Martinelli and Saka. So you've got four really dangerous players there ahead of, ahead of him. Zinchenko is going in there alongside party and just finding these players in acres of space. It's just... He really has been sensational. But yeah, Nketi has been great. And Saka, obviously, is just an absolute star, isn't he? Yeah, I think he's Football of the Year material myself. But there we are. Just want to end the Arsenal section, Migs, with what I think is, you know, a confected controversy. You know, Mikel Arteta's antics on the touchline. Now, that's nothing new. You know, Pep Guardiola was last seen recoiling after kicking a water bottle into the opposing dugout. Do we need to grow up a bit about this debate? I just can't see it. Yeah, a little bit. I mean, and yeah, as you say, it's something that's just been almost a standard across the Premier League. I remember, I remember once, just just as you mentioned, kicking the water bottle, didn't, wasn't, we, we, didn't we have two days of um, body language analysis when Mourinho once smashed a bottle of the, on the ground because Rashford missed a chance? Um yeah. <laughs> So yeah, he, 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 picked, he picked up the, the the basket, didn't he, and threw it down. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's one it's one of those things, I suppose, as part of the the superficial color of the game, but in 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 actual real terms, it's kind of irrelevant. And also, I do. It's one of those things, I suppose. Is that maybe it's a sign of Arsenal success in the sense in that the better you get, the the more that other sides or people on the outside look for reasons to kind of dislike you in some way uh, or something things to latch onto because success by itself can be a challenge to people and yeah I, I, I get it it can be if you're on the opposition side especially if you're getting beaten by Arsenal it can be annoying as as he does jump around he gets aggressive 
Arteta is clearly immersed, but it's, it's one of those things I have to say I've never I've never been too bothered about. Yeah, me too. Manchester United have got their traditional home draw in the FA Cup, Tony. Eric Ten Hag is still questioning their mentality, you know, after conceding those late goals. The more I see of him, the more impressed I am with him. What about you? Yeah, I totally agree. I'd love to speak to him, which no doubt means you'll be speaking to him next week. Um, (laughs) (laughs) uh, Yeah, he's he's great. I mean, I guess they had that horrific start, didn't they? And there was was talk about him going after three or four games, which was obviously complete nonsense. This is a guy who has a way he wants to play. And actually, he's probably spent much of the season not necessarily playing in the way he would most prefer to play, which is dominating possession, because... The, the squad that he has at his disposal isn't really set up for that. So anyway, his kind of tactical flexibility is all the more impressive because we see plenty of other coaches refusing to bend from the way they want to play because their, their belief in it is so strong. Ten Hag obviously has that sense of pragmatism in him, obviously has a kind of strong belief in the iron core that was required to to get rid of the Cristiano Ronaldo show. And things are going, they, they look like a team that are capable of getting results. He's, you know, his substitutions are obviously, some might say they were a touch negative on Sunday, but the odds are they may well have lost even if he if he hadn't made those changes. Squad depth is an issue for them, I think. I actually thought Val Veghorst played pretty well on Sunday, but you can't be looking at a squad that has Val Veghorst as a, as a serious number nine, thinking they're going to challenge for, for, for titles. I'd argue they probably need, even even though Casemiro wasn't there on, on Sunday, I'd argue they probably need at least one more cent- central midfielder. I don't think over the course of a long season, Christian Eriksen is is really the answer in there. He's probably more of a number 10 anyway. Probably another centre-back, probably another right-back. And you do wonder about the goalkeeper going forward. David Hayer does look, he still makes those amazing kind of one-off saves and, and there's plenty of those still in him, but you do wonder about his ability on the ball and, and some of the mistakes that he makes. So there are plenty of, plenty of room for improvement at United, but um, if they end this season in the top four, which looks likely, then I think that's a really, really good job well done by Ten Hag in his first campaign. Mm. Do you agree with that, Migs, in terms of the number of signings that United need to actually turn them into realistic title contenders for next season? Yeah, I would say so. And again, I suppose they illustrate how quickly it can turn around. Obviously, and this comes back to what I was saying earlier with, with Liverpool, United are obviously a bit off a proper title challenge, but the progress is clear. The optimism that they will be, can be in one soon is there. And it was interesting, after the game against Arsenal... Ten Hag said he was um, he was more annoyed than encouraging at that because at some at some of the mistakes and told the players that and of course it's understandable and these are the sort of standards that are going to get United to where they want to be. But equally, I did think that whole game it kind of just illustrated where the two teams are, which is Arsenal very much coming to, uh, on an upward curve of a very exciting project with Arteta having the team as he wants it and playing the sort of football he would idealise, especially in that brilliant last twenty minutes. And United are basically two and a half years behind that. And hence, in that game, Ten Hag didn't feel he could go toe-to-toe with Arsenal because they can play that football to the same level. And it was just, I think, a reflection of that, albeit with so much in it that made it such a great game. But yeah, generally, I don't think United are that far off. But there is a mix of a few players still have to step up, both that he signed and that are there, or else, you know, the question is whether they will remain. Oh, and he's got two or three positions to fill. And that's the biggest, of course, is um, at centre forward. I mean, this, that isn't to diminish. Veg course is, is already, I think, doing actually quite a good standing role. I thought he gave, he was really interesting in how he gave Saliba quite a difficult game. I certainly gave him a lot to think about on Sunday, but clearly 
they're looking at a, a longer term option. They've also got in, in in Martinez and Casemiro. They've got two guys there with just exceptional mentality, which is maybe something that was possibly missing or has been missing from United for a while. And I think with Ronaldo gone, Bruno Fernandez definitely looks like more of a leader as well. So that does look like there's a, there's a strong core there that Ten Hag can build from. Yeah, well, we've got a brief break from Premier League action. FA Cup, as I said earlier at the weekend. Any Premier League teams in peril, do you think, Migs? You know, what about Leicester at Walsall, maybe? West Ham at Derby, where I must admit, I love the job that Paul Warren does. Yeah, I mean, we're, we're, at, we're at the point, basically, where with a lot, with a lot, I mean, and some of his infused, of course, actually by their own Premier League struggles, in that these aren't really reprieves from that, but they consume such focus that it, it can mean they're they're ready to get at for in these big ties. And yeah, I, I would totally agree. Walsall against Leicester City, is, I think, is the one to watch as the potential. So, I mean, Leicester should have enough quality, but you just can't completely guarantee that, can you? Fulham Sunderland as well. I know mean, Fulham are actually on a... Um, they've had a really strong season. You know, there's been talk of Europe, maybe slightly pegged back in terms of... Uh, how Spurs very narrowly beat them on Monday night, but it's still quite a good reflection of Fulham. But I do I wonder is that one of those situations where it's two teams meeting each other at exactly the right time for for the uh, the lower place side because so much is full so much of Fulham's focus has been in the league and it just catches them a little bit cold. And I I almost think that something could happen there. I just have a feeling about that. So some of them have a bit, a bit of growing quality as well. Mm. Well, Spurs are at Preston, Tony. You know, there's been a revival of the talk about Harry Kane's future. He, he called Jimmy Greaves' record on Monday night at the cottage. Where do you see that future lying? We talked about loyalty earlier on, didn't we? Yeah. He's 30 in July, isn't he? If he moves, I mean, arguably, you could say he should have already moved by now. But I think this summer probably is, is if he signs new contracts and stays beyond this summer, I think that could be it. He could be at Spurs for life. And that, that's not necessarily a bad thing. Although for the quality of player that he is and what he's given to the game and and, and maybe the things he should have won, you could argue that he, he might look back at that in years to come and regret that. I mean, Gerard, Stephen Gerrard did that at Liverpool, but at least that's some trophies to show for it at the end, if not the big one. Kane, Kane doesn't want anything. I mean, Tottenham were just awful in the first half against Fulham on Monday night. I mean, I can't. I mean, it's not the first time they've been terrible in the first half of the game. And Kane just pulled them out of the mire with just an absolutely wonderful turn and finish. And then the second half, they were actually quite comfortable. And I think Miggs is right. Fulham, Fulham's second half performance there was a bit looked a bit weary. They've put a lot into the last few weeks since, since coming back from the World Cup. And if they do make some changes in the FA Cup, you think Sunderland might might have the potential to do a job on them. But it doesn't sound like Conte is going to be here beyond the end of this season. A returning Pochettino would probably convince Kane to give it another go and, and stay on. He may decide to do that anyway. Plenty of players in history haven't won as much as they should have done by staying loyal to clubs and it might just be that Harry Kane goes down as another one of those. A, a rare um, example of it in the modern game, but that may that may be the way we're going. Sure. There was a sad inevitability about Frank Lampard losing his job at Everton, Meigs. You know, the depth of the chaos there is 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 quite remarkable, isn't it? You know, and it was probably reflected in the immediate bulletins about the sort of managers that they would succeed him with. You know, Bielsa, Daesh was mentioned. You know, that smacks of a club without any idea of where it's going and how it's going to get there. 
Yeah, that's exactly it, isn't it? I mean, I have to say, I don't think Lampard did a good job, even allowing for last season's survival, which kind of came from one surge. But equally, it's one of those where when when you do stand back, because I know there's been a lot of talk about what next for Lampard, but it actually may not damage him too much just because of what the Everton job has become and what Everton are as a club right now, which is... I mean, it's interesting. I remember, like, over the last two or three years... there's been a lot of chatter about kind of potentially going for Graham Potter before or I think Thomas Frank has been mentioned a little bit over the the past few days but the biggest issue for Everton there is not just why would these managers leave clubs with such defined structures for a club without any of that but um, but, but what's the point because I mean you can't create what Potter and Frank do because in, the, in, the, in these sort of clubs, and this is what modern clubs need to be, especially clubs at Everton's financial level right now, where it, it needs to be a proper kind of pyramid structure where everything has a, a clean place. You just don't get the sense of that in Everton. And again, we, I mean, we've already talked about kind of resets and fallow years in this podcast, but they need one more than anyone else really and, and have a an even deeper think about it and yeah as you say the, like the different profiles of managers they're going for sums up so much now I think it will be interesting though, because it's been uh, I wrote this Monday night with the, with the latest that they were you know they sounded out Bielsa but one of the deliberations Everton have apparently been going through is that while there is obviously an appeal and a necessity perhaps in getting a short term firefighter as, as these things are called or as these kind of appointments are called, in, may, in maybe Sean Dyche. There's also deliberation about, say, if Dyche did keep them up, then there'd be a pressure to give them the job. And that's not necessarily the football they want going forward, as they do want to kind of shift things. But that shift has never been more, more badly needed. But of course, they're in an even greater bind, because while this, I think, in normal circumstances, would be a point where they should be addressing what next and really thinking about the sort of club they want to be, all of that is complicated by the immense financial pressure and that in some clubs in this situation, it can be a good thing to go go down. And I know this is a debate that's been had about Everton the last few days. I don't think they can afford to go down because they've got the stadium, because of just, you know, where they are financially. And it's, 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 it's I suppose, this, this difficult decision and this difficult point is the end product of a decade of decline. Mm. Well, Frank Lampard splits opinion. Now, we've had our fallouts. I remember one blazing 45-minute row on a Sunday morning when he was a player. Didn't like what I'd written. I've always found him, though, a decent, reasonable man. And he can't be held totally responsible for the mess at Everton, though it's cost him his job. He's intelligent, as we know. He's a natural communicator. So I wonder whether he'll just walk away from management. I'll understand if he does so. I think it will say more about the profession that he's tried to establish himself in rather than him himself. Don't know what you think. Let us know. In the meantime, I'd just like to thank Miggs and Tony for their insight and thank Jurgen Klopp for his time. Never, ever bet against him, people. Hold up. 
What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. 